All right, Jesse, I'm still fuming about last week's controlling killer. What's the story this time? When a respected father of two is gunned down in his son's preschool parking lot, a community is outraged. Looking for answers, the investigators reveal shocking secrets, obsessive love, infidelity, and even a demon or two. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad vibes, bad nights, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are ecstatic this week to welcome and shout out a new set of amazing patrons. Samantha J and Lucia A. Karen K and Stella G. And Alicia L. Wow. Okay. So this one is a pretty, pretty wild story. I was fairly certain that somebody either recommended or mentioned it to me, but I could not find it in our files, which are all over the place. So after 118 episodes, guys, we finally have a form on our website (laughs) that you can input your recommendations. So they will all be in one place. So I don't have to do this every week, scratching my head and checking 18 different spreadsheets and files (laughs) to see if somebody recommended this case. So if there is a case that you really want to hear, and even if you've already submitted it, I would actually go back to lovemurder.love and we'll probably post something about this on the social media as as well. Go back and and just submit it again, just in case, because I just want to make sure if it's really important to you and you really want to hear the case, I want to make sure that I'm hearing your request. And of course, for these shout outs, I want to give you a shout out and a thank you. But yeah, seeing as I could not find it, if you did request this case, let me know and we'll shout you out next week. And Andy, I think with that being said, I know you got to want to find out about this demon, right? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> We're kind of getting into not Do not like, do not like any demon stuff. That's like the doll and the demon go together. No, I, I promise you this is a very low level, questionable demon. And in fact, I think some people would really like the sound of this demon's voice as described. We'll get there. Don't worry. She's looking at me with big questionable (laughs) eyes right now. So I think just so we can get there and kick off some spooky season stuff, let's get it rolling. October is the off season for Greenville, South Carolina. And October 21st, 2010 was no different than any other year. Pulse nightclub and lounge was pretty much deserted when a couple walked in around 8.30 p.m. Bartender Christine Oliveira was relieved to finally have some paying customers and company other than the DJ. She clocked the man to be in his 40s. He was wearing glasses and had salt and pepper hair, 
Well, the woman was a brunette in her 30s. Maybe not very typically classically beautiful, but there was an attractive vibrancy about her. Both struck Christine as professionals. It was also very immediately clear that the man was besotted with the woman. (laughs) The man beamed as he ordered drinks for the couple and told Christine that he was happy to be out and how nice her bar was. The woman gratefully accepted the drink, but seemed not quite as happy as her partner. While she excused herself to the restroom looking concerned, Christine asked the man if all was okay with his lady friend. He responded that she was just dealing with a lot at home. There was somebody who was treating her poorly, and that's why they were there. He said that she needed a place to get away from her troubles. And throughout the next hour or so, it really did seem like she was getting away from her troubles. The woman seemed to perk up. She unwound. She even performed a surprisingly good salsa routine for her date. And then they began dancing together, his hands on her rear end, her arms hugging him close to her. Christine, who still had no other customers, tried to busy herself to avoid watching them as they exchanged a few quick lip-to-lip kisses, something she'd later describe as more like pops or pecks than any sort of making-out type kiss. And she was grateful that that PDA was limited because it's always an awkward situation. Andy and I both worked in service. Yes. (laughs) When somebody is full on going at it, you are not drunk and you are trying to serve them, but also desperately not pay attention to what's happening in front of you. Also trying to get them to pay their bill is the worst. (laughs) So gross. Sliding it (laughs) towards kind of in between them. Yeah, so she was actually grateful that that wasn't how they were behaving. They only had one or two drinks each. They were clearly older. They didn't seem intoxicated. And they were keeping the PDA to a tasteful minimum. Just a little grab ass here, a little peck here and there. So they ended up getting the check. And when they ended up tabbing out, the man seemed especially ecstatic. And by then, the woman seemed like she had been having a great time as well. So the man thanked Christine for her service, and he reiterated that his friend had been having a rough time, and it was made all the better by that experience and the pulse ambiance. So Christine mentioned that they had an upcoming Halloween party, and the man told his date that they should absolutely come back for it. Christine watched the couple leave with their arms wrapped around each other and surmised that they were on a first date that had gone pretty darn well. She said that there was this vibe where they seemed like they know each other pretty well, But that this romantic relationship was new, that especially the guy had a big air of, wow, I got her. I finally got her. Like he was so excited to have his hands around her, to get to be in her company, to be out having drinks with her. He seemed very obviously interested in this woman. Christine wouldn't find out for months that the sweet date was actually a rendezvous between married coworkers. And though no one knows for sure how far the affair really went, the effects of that intoxicating relationship, tied up with jealousy, obsession, and something like love, would explode into shocking violence only weeks later. This case would reveal spouses behaving badly, HR violations, talking demons, and in true love murder form, a type of obsessive devotion that can cause a person to go mad. Throughout the course of this episode, you will find out exactly who these people were and we'll do our best to answer the questions that later everyone would be asking. How far did the relationship go? How one-sided was it? And can love make you go clinically insane? 
But for now, we are going to jump right into the shocking crime. Weeks later, shortly before 9 a.m. on Thursday, November 18th, 2010, 36-year-old Rusty Snyderman pulled into the parking lot of Dunwoody Prep Preschool. The boyish, bespectacled dad unsnapped his three-year-old son, Ian, from his car seat and bundled him through the door for drop-off. His wife, Andrea, had already dropped off their older child, five-year-old Sophia, at kindergarten on her way to the GE office in nearby Marietta, Georgia, where she worked. It was a typical suburban morning for a little family, the type of drop-off that if you have kids, you're going to do a million times before they're able to drive. (laughs) Super-duper ordinary. But on this typical late-fall day, something went shockingly and horrifyingly wrong. As Rusty exited the preschool and walked towards his Silver Infinity G35, a bearded man in a hooded sweatshirt stepped out of a silver minivan. When Rusty pulled open his car door to get in and leave, the assailant approached him and seemingly without any warning or words exchanged at all, raised a handgun and began shooting Rusty. Jesus. Could you imagine with kids around? Terrifying. When I first heard about this case, my first thought was, oh my God, was his son in the back seat? Was his son in the car? And this is horrifying all around, but I do want you guys all to know that Ian was safely in the preschool. And also, luckily, none of the other children witnessed this. Okay. Yeah, that's not how I envision it when you explain it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because it's drop-off time is usually a cluster F. I mean, there's kids and parents everywhere. So it was a small miracle that no other children witnessed this execution occurring. The loud popping sounds drew attention all down the street and throughout the busy plaza that Dunwoody Prep was located in. A chiropractor down the street watched as a medium height man in blue jeans, a hoodie, and a beard, which the beard was very strange because it was over his mouth, but it didn't appear like he had a mustache. Most people with beards have a mustache and a beard. It seemed like it was just on his chin. Okay. Yep. So he watched this man who he described as probably around 5'10", 5'11", maybe, casually walk towards the minivan with what looked like a silver handgun, possibly a semi-automatic in his hand. He got in. He reversed. He said that the way he reversed the car seemed like maybe he was unused to driving it. He didn't seem very skilled at, like, there was some sort of throttle-ish issue when he reversed And then he peeled out of the parking lot, raced down the street before making an abrupt U-turn and then merging into rush hour traffic. Witnesses would later say that it felt like something out of a movie, that it did not feel real. A bunch of people were out and about. This is right around 9 a.m. in the morning. And this was a busy plaza, so people are going to work. People are dropping off their kids, but luckily not exactly at that moment. So a lot of people saw it. And because it was so out in the daytime... And in a public area, people really, for a second, were looking around to see if there were cameras because it just didn't seem like something that would occur. And obviously, they shoot a lot of films and TV series in Georgia because of the taxes. Yeah. But unfortunately, it was all too real. And Rusty was at that point lying, dying of gunshot wounds in the parking lot of his son's preschool. Jesus. 
911 calls were made by many witnesses and the school's administrator, and the police arrived on the scene only two minutes after receiving the first call, which is stellar response time. The paramedics were not far behind, and it became immediately clear to all of the emergency personnel that Rusty's wounds were extremely serious and perhaps fatal. EMTs took over CPR that had been being administered by a pediatrician who had an office nearby. And after about five to 10 minutes, Rusty was rushed to the Atlanta Medical Center, roughly 14 miles away from the preschool. Again, none of the children had witnessed the horrific attack, and thankfully, no one else was injured. The school administrator looked up Ian's emergency contact, his mother Andrea, and called her at work. She notified Andrea that there had been an accident, though she was mm. sh- sure to say it's Ian's fine, Ian's okay, but there was a really bad accident and you need to come right away. She said that she told her this because she was worried that if she said your husband was shot or something terrible happened to your husband, that she might get into a car accident on her way to the preschool or something else. And she just wanted to try to keep the conversation as calm as possible. And there was also the police there who were saying, we don't really know what's going on. Do not share any information about what happened at this point. Mm -hmm. So of course, Andrea started screaming. She's like, what happened? Was it rusty? Did something happen to him? On the way to the preschool, Andrea called her parents and brother, as well as Rusty's father in Cleveland and her boss, Hemi Newman. At the scene, she tore into the parking lot, basically fell out of her car, and ended up collapsing into the arms of a police officer. Again, the scene had not been processed, so they're trying to keep everyone to steer clear out of it. It's a very new investigation. And there was also the fact that no one on the scene really knew if... Rusty was going to be okay. So they couldn't definitively tell her anything. So they said, you need to get to the hospital. They wanted somebody to take her in a police car, but she insisted on driving. And on her way to the hospital, she then called her best friend. She also called her parents. She called, I think, her boss again at that point and let everybody know to meet her at the hospital where something had gone on very, very badly. Well, Rusty had left in an ambulance about 20 minutes before Andrea had arrived on the scene. At the hospital, the doctors found that Rusty had suffered from four catastrophic gunshot wounds to his neck and chest. An autopsy would later determine that the first bullet ended up going through his jaw, just, I think, maybe nicking or just narrowly avoiding his carotid artery. Then it hit his shoulder and ended up in his back. And that one, Jesus, that was shot at point blank. That was the first one. And then it appeared that he had collapsed. And the next three shots were taken at a height into him while he was on the pavement. So it looks like the second one entered the body at the bottom of his rib cage, pierced his liver, diaphragm, and right lung. And then two more bullets sliced through his abdomen, dicing his intestines and causing devastating internal bleeding. Within minutes of his arrival at the hospital, Rusty Snyderman was declared dead. Andrea had now arrived at the hospital with her parents and brother Todd, and they were all informed that Rusty had passed away after suffering fatal gunshot wounds. The whole family was in shock. I mean, that's not what I would have expected. I would have thought, there was a car accident in front of the 
preschool or something like that, I would have never imagined. No. Yeah. Who could imagine that? Well, Andrea was grieving and trying to answer the detective's questions about Rusty's plans for the day and who could possibly have had a motive for wanting this kind, smart, and generous father dead. By that time, the media was already going crazy. And this was because this was a pretty safe community and suburb. He was a very upstanding man. Rusty was a Harvard business school grad, an entrepreneur. He was a very well-respected father. This is a pretty high-end private nursery school, as well as the fact that it just happened at a nursery school. No, that's crazy. Yeah, that's the type of stuff that does blow up in the media because it's terrifying to think that some sort of stray bullet could injure or kill a very small child. This preschool was also, I think, part of a daycare as well. So there were legitimate babies in this building as well. Also, it was publicized pretty early on that the way the gunman operated suggested potentially a professional hit, which begged the question of why. As the police dug in, it didn't seem that there was a person alive who had a bad thing to say about Rusty. He was truly an intelligent and loving father of two small children. The police obtained a search warrant to seize the family computer as well as Rusty's laptop and other devices to see if there may have been some deadly skeletons in his closet. They also continued to interview the statistically most likely suspect, Rusty's wife, Andrea. Who exactly are Andrea and Rusty, and what was their relationship like? Well, let's talk about that right now. Andrea, maiden name Greenberg, was born in Sylvania, Ohio. She was a bright student who was especially gifted in STEM, which is an acronym for science, math, engineering, and technology. She attended University of Indiana and graduated with a degree in computer information systems and technology. During her freshman year, in September of 1994, Andrea visited the campus's Hillel chapter, which was referred to as the Jewish home away from home for students of University of Indiana. It was there that she met a charming junior named Rusty Snyderman, and the two bonded almost immediately, even going out on their first date on the same day that they met. Oh my God. <laughs> They're kids. I mean, she's 18. I think he was 20 at this meeting, but it was pretty darn close to love or some sort of connection at first sight. Russell Rusty Snyderman had a lot in common with Andrea. He was also from a close-knit Jewish family from Northern Ohio. Rusty had been born and raised in Cleveland and is still well-remembered at his alma mater. In high school, affable Rusty was multi-talented, serving as the editor of the school paper, participating in Model UN, and competing on the school's golf team. His classmates recall him as self-deprecating, funny, charming, and optimistic. Andrea was indeed one of those people who were charmed by Rusty. There was an immediate closeness and intimacy that grew even stronger when the couple discovered that their grandparents had co-founded a synagogue together in Florida. What? Yeah, how wild is that? That's crazy. Rusty graduated in 1996 and moved to his hometown of Cleveland to work at an accounting firm while Andrea finished up school and the couple did long distance. After Andrea graduated in 1998, they moved to Chicago, where they both landed jobs in different departments of Deloitte Consulting. In 2000, Rusty proposed to Andrea while on a romantic vacation to beautiful Laguna Niguel, which is in Orange County, and she happily accepted. 
The early 2000s were a very exciting time for the couple. They got engaged. Rusty was accepted at Harvard Business School. And then on December 30th, 2000, Andrea and Rusty were married at the very same synagogue their grandparents had founded decades before. So cute. <laughs> so cute. But of course, like, I feel like as soon as you get engaged, you're like, okay, it's got to be the synagogue, right? It's got to be that yeah. one. Yeah. There's no other option. While Rusty was in business school, Andrea worked for Harvard in a technical role. Rusty graduated and got a job in business development at a big tech company's Atlanta, Georgia office. Andrea followed her husband while keeping her Harvard Business School job. She telecommuted for a little while and eventually moved to an independent contractor role, so she worked for them intermittently. After their first child, daughter Sophia, was born in August of 2005, the upwardly mobile young couple bought a beautiful $900,000 house, which is more like $1.365 in today's money, in the desirable Dunwoody suburb of Atlanta. Rusty moved into wealth management with J.P. Morgan in 2007, and the family welcomed little Ian in October of that same year. The family flourished. They had a great community. They found a synagogue that they loved being a part of. And they did earn the respect of the teachers at Dunwoody Prep when Sophia was there. The staff especially found Rusty to be a singular father. He was just apparently incredible. Because they had dual incomes for the most part, even though Andrea mostly did contract work, she was still working. So they were doing well enough. They were saving money and they even got to buy a nice little lake house and they would spend a lot of summers up there making memories. So it sounds like a pretty good life. Yeah. However, when the recession hit in 2008, both Andrea and Rusty were laid off from their respective jobs. But like I said, they had budgeted really well. They had put a ton in savings. So they had amassed quite a safety net. And it also turns out, I think, that they were both able to find some short-term consulting gigs as well. So they were never completely without income. Okay. Rusty did have a hard time finding job opportunities that were permanent that he really, really was excited about. And after one failed venture as a CFO of a startup – ended, Rusty decided that he wanted to finally pursue his lifelong dream of starting his own company. Andrea was supportive and decided to look for her first full-time position since before she had children in order to maintain benefits and also keep the family solvent while Rusty got his business off the ground. Yep. Which is very wise. One of Andrea's friends introduced her to a woman from her book club whose husband, Hemi Newman, was a higher-up manager in the same technical field that Andrea had previously worked in. Andrea was hired as a quality systems manager in the product creation department of GE and received a salary of $125,000 a year, which is more like $160K now. It's nice. It's really nice, especially given that it was a very rough economy at this time. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rusty was getting cooking on his company. It was called Star Voicemail, which is pretty much exactly how it sounded. It was kind of like a mashup between the personal ringtones of yore and the cameo of today. Yeah. For a price, you could get a celebrity to leave your voicemail. Especially, they were marketing it mostly to young people, and it would be something where you could get some pop star to say, yo, Keely can't come to the phone right now. <laughs> Uh, you're going to have to call her back because she's hanging out with me on my private jet or something like that. 
But there was actually a lot of buzz around this. People were really interested in the idea. In fact, Justin Bieber's team was interested in getting involved somehow, either just being one of the featured voices on it or investing. So funny. Is that funny? It's, I mean, it's a kind of cute idea. You're like, baby, 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 (laughs) I'm not here right now. Yeah, exactly. So things were looking up, but the situation wasn't without complications. For years, Rusty had been the nine to five breadwinner, while Andrea had mostly raised the kids. And now she was required to travel very frequently for work. Now, she traveled at least once per month, sometimes two times. But this is hard. This is a big change up for young children who are used to having their mom at home. Totally. It's a big change up for her, too. Exactly. Huge change up for her. I mean, it must have been stressful to be away from her kids. It was stressful for Rusty because while she was traveling, I mean, you know more than anyone what this is like. Your husband's on the road constantly that when your partner is gone, it's just on you. He's trying to take care of two kids that are very, very young. will also get his own business going. So there's a lot. And you're running a complete household. And like, shout out to all the the single parents locking it down out there because it's not easy. So I think he was a little overwhelmed too, because clearly being the full-time caretaker of two small children doesn't leave a lot of room for building your company. No, not at all. You need just a bunch of time. Yeah. So there was a lot of stress. And of course, that's a very typical thing for parents to fight about when they're both also building their own careers is who gets to come first with their career and who has to take care of the kids. It's tough. So Andrea would claim, though, that they got through it with their characteristic ability for good communication and problem solving. They hired a part-time nanny and Andrea claimed at that point things were were on the mend for them. It wasn't so bad in their relationship that it was anything even approaching a relationship ender. Later, some witnesses would claim that maybe that wasn't exactly the truth, that there may have been more simmering resentment than Andrea would later reveal on her part, that she had to be the sole breadwinner for the family, and that she did tell some people that she felt like her and Rusty were growing apart, This is also, they got together very young. I feel like she's having this new experience of being looked at for her own self and her own professional abilities and not just a wife and a mother. Yeah, being away from the kids too. Yep. There's a big change. So there was some resentment. She said to a friend that Rusty had some resentment as well. He had maybe made a comment that she didn't make as much money as he had been making when He was the sole breadwinner. We don't know if this is true, though, because this is double hearsay. I feel like if one person hears something and then it just snowballs with, like, community gossip, you know what I mean? Exactly. And it's also, it's maybe just a friend venting to another friend, and you never expect that it'll meet the light of day later on that people would be talking about it. Regardless of the neighborhood's scuttlebutt about the state of the marriage... (laughs) Things did seem feel pretty status quo for all of us that are out there that are somewhere between our late 20s and our 40s where you're trying to build a business and young humans and both of your career and your kids need all of the attention in the world. So yes, it just seems, absolutely. Yeah, the total normal little spats that a couple would get into. But Andrea reported later that things were pretty good and they were thriving when the impossible occurred on November 18th, 2010, when Rusty was gunned down in the preschool parking lot. 
So here we are back to the beginning. Andrea was being questioned by the police, and she said that there was absolutely no one who would wish her generous husband dead. She did say, however, though, that there had been a couple strange events that maybe were linked to the murder. Okay, do tell. Yeah, so there was two things that had happened within a month of the murder. The first was when the couple was home at night on October 20th, their garage door had opened entirely by itself. Uh, And they didn't, of course, know that it was just their garage door opening. They thought somebody had gained entrance to the home through the garage, which I completely would as well. So they called 911. The police came and there was no one there. There was no evidence that anyone tried to get into the house. There was nothing stolen from the garage. So at that point, the police guessed that it was just a technical glitch. Maybe somebody in the neighborhood had a similar frequency of door opener and it had accidentally opened their garage door as well. The next incident was far more terrifying. On November 10th, eight days before Rusty was gunned down, he had been getting Ian ready for preschool around 8.30 in the morning when he thought he smelled gas. He rounded the outside of his house to go check to see if there was a potential leak. Okay. So it appears that this must have been on the outside of their home near an AC unit because he was coming around the back of the house to check to see if something was unscrewed when he found a strange man lying face down near their AC unit. This is a very nice suburb, big lawns, backyards, nice houses. It's not like things are like so tightly packed like in a city where one of those things could absolutely happen where somebody could just have passed out in an alleyway near your house. This is not that type of environment. I mean, if there was someone passed out in my alleyway at my house and I live in a city and we're very close to other people's houses, I would still be like, what the, <laughs> what is going That's on? That's true. <laughs> That's true. It's not. Yeah. So Andrea actually recounted the scary saga of what happened to the police. And Finally, this is a classic. Wait, 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 Jessie. wait, 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 wait. You're just leaving it at no, that. No, I'm gonna tell that you. There's just a dude. <laughs> no, I'm okay. I'm gonna tell you, but it's from the book <laughs> that I use for research. So I was just stopping so I could <laughs> I could quote the source and say also that this is like this is old school me where I forget to do the sources until halfway through uh. the episode. And halfway through a statement. Yeah. If you're a, a new listener, I don't think I've done this in a while, but when we first got this started, is a new one. yeah, when we first got started, man, it took me until middle of our episodes to be like, oh, by the way. Also, we were pregnant. So yes, excuse. it was all a pregnancy brain there. I have no excuses now. None. So the primary source, I went back to the old well. I think we've now done almost all of his books. Michael Fleeman. This one is called Crazy For You. It was a wild ride. I also watched a show 2020 on ID called Angels and Demons. So this is the account of what Andrea told the police about this terrifying encounter in Michael Fleeman's book, Crazy For You. He thought he was sleeping, Andrea told the investigator, but then the person stood up and Rusty asked him some questions. One, he asked this person, are you okay? And two, are you supposed to be here? Like he would ask a two-year-old. There was no response. Rusty got smart. He ran into the car in the garage, backed up the driveway into the street and called 911. His son Ian was in the car already. So I think it was okay. that he had come outside, was getting him tucked into the car to go. 
and then smelled the gas, went outside, then ran back, realized he needed to get his son out of the situation, then called 911. Uh, yeah. Okay. Andrea was at her desk at GE at the time, having dropped off Sophia at the elementary school on her way to work. Recounting what Rusty later told her, she said that the man appeared to be Hispanic. The man fled across the lawn and into the woods behind the house. As he ran, he held something in the small of his back. Rusty didn't see it, but he feared that it was a gun. Their concern was deepened by the fact the man seemed to know the layout of their property. Had the man run down the other side of the house, he would have plunged into a deep gully. Instead, he went toward a pathway so secluded that only people who lived there knew it existed. Rusty later took Ian to daycare and returned to talk to the police and firefighters who had come to make sure there was no danger from the leak. Gas had, in fact, been released, though it appeared to a gas company employee that the meter had only been falling apart due to age and manufacturing defect and not from tampering. Andrea said that the gas guy believed actually that the man on the ground was probably not looking for a place to sleep, but was looking to steal copper. Why was he face down on the ground? I don't know if he was maybe looking into the basement. So he wasn't like sleeping on the ground. He didn't know. Rusty, according to Andrea, he couldn't think of in your brain, you're looking at somebody face down next to your house. You are assuming that they're sleeping or passed out because you don't know why else they would be face down on the ground. Yeah, that whole thing is sketchy. It's super sketchy. So they had been asking her so many questions about the couple's personal lives, about all of his business arrangements, his previous employers. And she was like, guys, I'm telling you, you're barking up the wrong tree. No one wanted to kill Rusty at all. Just focus on this guy because this is the only thing I can think of that's happened to us recently that's really scary and really weird. So she said chasing down the perpetrator would be time better spent. And they also asked her about people who knew their daily routine because clearly this was a targeted hit. And that person knew that Rusty would be dropping off Ian at preschool at that time. So she said our exterminator knows our daily routine. I don't know what else to tell. Our exterminator? Yeah, I was like, you got a lot of bugs if your exterminator knows your daily routine. <laughs> I see them once a year. We're renovating our basement right now. And so I guess the people who are working on our basement would ostensibly know our daily routine because they come at eight in the morning. So they see us, you know, get the kids ready and go off to school. But you don't have the exterminator come every day like a contractor. That's true. That's a valid point. That's <laughs> sus. It is. So she says the exterminator would know. But of course, still detectives pressed on saying, you got to tell us more about what's going on in your personal lives. And they were very sympathetic about it there were smooth let's say because they said oh we totally don't think either one of you were having an affair we are not insinuating that you personally had anything to do with your husband's murder of course however if we do find the right person there might be a clever defense attorney out there that turns it on us and says well you didn't investigate the wife enough you didn't make sure that you found out about all the skeletons in rusty's closet you didn't find out if there was maybe a potential lover involved with either of them so we're not doing this because we think you did anything we're doing this to protect all of our asses which i think is a smart way of going about it so she said that absolutely no one was cheating she laughed actually laughed in the police interview thinking about Rusty cheating on her. She said it's because he had barely enough time to go to the bathroom given all of the things he was doing, running the household, taking care of the kids, starting his own business. 
And she said he was also the type of guy who would call her a million times a day and just say, I love you. He was just deeply in love with his wife. It was just not a possibility of something that would happen. So they were like, okay, but what about you? Do you got anything going on? Yeah, I mean, Rusty's the one who's dead, so I wouldn't imagine that somebody did. It was his affair partner. You know what I mean? You'd think so, right? Usually is. And of course, also, she wouldn't know. I mean, she's laughing about it and saying, ha, 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 ha. Of course, he loves me a million. He does. And perhaps he did. We haven't found out yet. But yeah, when you ask the spouse, I think nine times out of 10, unless they have some proof, they're going to say, no, of course he wasn't cheating on me. Uh, so they move to her and they say, do you got anyone in your life? What's going on with you? And she said, nope, absolutely not. Nothing close to a fair. It never would. And they say, okay, but does anyone like you? They asked the same question about Rusty. They asked her and his family, like, was Rusty secretly gay? I mean, they were going everywhere with this. And she said, okay, well, if I really have to think about it, yes, there was somebody that expressed interest in me. It was my boss, Hemi Newman. He had at some point divulged that he had romantic feelings for her, but she said she had politely rebuffed him and that he had actually handled it well. They had managed to go on and have a completely cordial and professional relationship after that. Now, Andrea's mother was also in this interview and she said she told me all about it as soon as it happened. And both women kind of said this is just... What happens when you are a woman working in a male-dominated workplace or industry that you just kind of have to deal with it? So you set boundaries, you say no thank you, and then you hope everyone can move on and be adults. Yeah, but they usually fire you because they're ego. Yes, which is why she said she didn't go to HR about this. She was like, you just manage it between you and the person, say let's be cool, because if you make a bigger deal about it things might not end up so great for you. So that's about it. That's all they've got. And by Andrea's account, he seemed to handle it well when she rejected him. So there was little cause to think that this guy was the one that might have murdered Rusty. So with no real leads or motivations, the police began their investigation in earnest, discovering that Rusty had a $2 million life insurance policy that was to be paid to oh. Andrea shortly. This isn't entirely surprising. He was making a lot of money. This wasn't exactly a red flag per se. They also discovered that the family's financial situation was very healthy, despite the fact that Rusty had been out of work for some time. So they really were good savers. Andrea would say that when other couples who made similar amounts of money were out on vacations and going to lavish dinners, they were eating peanut butter and jelly and saving for the future. They listened to the 911 call that Rusty had made on the day that he discovered the man lying next to the Snyder man's house, and they canvassed the neighborhood. They investigated that situation as fully as they could, but everything led to a dead end. That man had not been seen around the neighborhood. No other neighbors had reported having a similar problem. They had absolutely no idea who that guy was or if he was related to the murder at all. They also interviewed the many witnesses who saw the gunmen that day in the morning, and they put together a police sketch of the perpetrator and released it to the media. While many calls did come in, nothing led to anything tangible. So the next step was analyzing the 47 different security cameras footage and putting together a continuous and enhanced video of what had occurred that morning. 
this was in a very public place within a plaza that had a lot of other businesses, not to mention there was businesses and doctor's offices across the road as well. So there was a lot of security camera footage. But of course, somebody has to piece it all together and make it continuous, let's say. So they ended up hiring a former Pinkerton detective who operated a company called Video Enhancements who did exactly that. The enhanced video picked up better footage of the type of minivan the murderer had been driving, as well as images of small white stickers on the van in exactly the places a rental car company would place them. Got it. The old rental car trick. The old rental car trick never works. So after extensive search, and they narrowed it down to two different types of cars, like they were like, okay, it's either this or this. And then they discovered it was a Kia. And then they went down to a Kia dealership and discovered that it was 100% absolutely after lots of investigation into this, a 2011 Kia Sedona. Luckily for them, the 2011 was a brand new model that had only been on the market for a few weeks. Then they ended up, yeah, so this is a good boon right now. This is a lucky thing that it wasn't a 2003 Honda Civic at this point. So they reached out to every rental car agency in Georgia, as well as both North and South Carolina to see if anyone was stocking these 2011 Kia Sedonas in silver. There were very few, given that the car was so new, that also could be cross-referenced with the specific date of the murder. So the police were able to personally inspect all of the Kia Sedonas that had been rented at the time. Okay. In one Enterprise Kia Sedona, the police found dark synthetic fibers, which would be consistent with the hair that you would find on a fake wig or beard. Obviously, on the enhanced video, the man's beard did appear strange. I mean, it was just a beard and with no mustache. That's really fucking strange. (laughs) It's really strange. (laughs) And that's what all the witnesses said. They didn't say that it was exactly false. You couldn't tell from a distance. But it was strange that it was pulled all the way down to the guy's chin and he didn't have any facial hair between his lip and his nose. Guys, just send us pictures of people who legitimately choose that. So they had figured out that this was very likely a costume beard. And they found this synthetic beard fibers. Now, this car, this minivan, had also been rented a few weeks earlier on Halloween. So they had to reach out to the person who had rented it on Halloween just to make sure that nobody else had been using the car and been in a costume that had also had fake beards which they had not. So nobody had been fake beardy (laughs) in this minivan except for the murderer. They're like, oh, I was an astronaut. I didn't didn't have any fake beards. (laughs) I'm just like thinking of all the different costumes where you'd need a fake beard now. Uh. So obviously this synthetic hair was a real bingo moment. They think pretty much they've got their getaway minivan at this point. Enterprise records show that this particular van had been rented from their Marietta office on November 17th and returned on the 18th, which was the day of the shooting, after the shooting. So this seems like their van. Enterprise also provided the contact phone number of the individual who had rented the minivan. And when they called the number, the person who answered was none other Then Hemi Newman, Andrea's boss. (gasps) Oh my goodness. Who would have thunk? (laughs) 
this. Okay. Also, like, Sarcasm. you're not using a fake ID. So I think he used a different name, but he used his real phone number. I'm shaking my head. Get it like a Google number or something. Get something. No, like, I can't. Well... The detectives hadn't followed up with Hemi, despite the fact that Andrea had told them, well, there's this one guy that's hit on me, because it was so fleeting. The way she talked about it seemed like, yeah, it was kind of not a big deal. No one cared. It just didn't seem like it was important enough to follow up on at that point. She was so dismissive about it. Very dismissive in her initial interviews. Okay, now, of course, they're very, very interested in speaking to Hemi, And they're beginning to harbor a little suspicion on the grieving widow as well. Wait, wait, real quick. Did he answer the phone like, hi, this is Hemi Newman? I'm pretty sure, yes. (laughs) Hemi Newman. (laughs) Hemi Newman here, not a murderer. Hemi Newman, renter of the uh, car from the 17th to 18th. Okay, so also, when I first was researching this, I thought, why a minivan? Minivans are not notoriously known as the quickest getaway cars. It might have been all they had on the lot, you know? That's exactly what happened. They interviewed the Enterprise people and they said he was supposed to get a compact car and that he was in a hurry to leave, apparently because he had to go murder someone. And he was getting really antsy and he was making everyone in the office uncomfortable because he was like had this anxious energy. And so they were like, oh, okay, we don't have your car ready, but we have this brand new minivan. Do you want to just take this? And he said yes. So that's how he ended up with the minivan. Which had he been, this is a lesson in patience, the virtue of patience. Because if he had gotten a random older model compact car that everyone and their mother drives, they wouldn't have been able to find him as quickly as they did in a brand new, relatively rare at this point, minivan. Yeah. So they have to slow play this a little bit. They don't want him to know that they're on to him. So they pretended to be from a different division who was reaching out to him about a hit and run accident that had occurred with the car that he had rented. I'm not sure if it was smart before or after it was imaginary and said that they needed to talk to him about that, which was smart. And he did dodge this interview for a couple of weeks. First, he was legitimately away on business and then He said that he had a doctor's appointment, he couldn't reschedule, and then eventually they nailed him down and they went to his condo in early January of 2011 to interview him. And Hemi seemed relaxed enough at the beginning of this conversation. He didn't really know it was an interrogation. He maybe suspected, but they weren't putting the screws to him or anything right away. But soon he became tense as the conversation drifted from rental cars to his recently failed marriage of over 20 years and his inappropriate interest in his employee, Andrea Snyderman. By the time he got noticeably nervous, the investigators read him his Miranda rights and forged on now without any pretense. Now they're straight up like, you got to tell us where you were on the morning of Rusty's murder. So Hemi claimed that he had arrived at work uncharacteristically early, around 5.30 in the morning. Oh. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he said that he was still there when he received a text and a call from Andrea that there had been an emergency at Ian's school. He said, though, that he did leave the building around 11 in the morning to return the minivan, which he had rented indeed, and he said he had rented it because his car was in the shop. After he returned the minivan, he said he returned to the GE offices, but he did not find out until about 1230 or so in the afternoon that Rusty had been killed. Hemi explained that 
they would probably be able to check his comings and goings in the GE office because they did have a key card, a security key card that you had to swipe to get in and out of the building. Hemi also admitted that during the end of his marriage, he had been attracted to Andrea and he had expressed those feelings. He corroborated Andrea's claim, though, that she had turned him down and then they had both moved on as gracefully as possible. Okay. After five hours of interrogation, they presented him with the video surveillance footage that pretty clearly showed Hemi in costume shooting Rusty Snyderman and then taking off in the minivan that he was admitting that he had indeed rented. But even despite being faced with this video footage, he continued to deny that the man in the footage was him. And they decided at that point that they had gotten everything that they could out of him. And they had enough absolutely to arrest him. So they did at that point. They arrested him for the murder of Rusty Snyderman. Let's be honest. Sex is better when everyone is enjoying themselves. That's why Dame Product designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection for all with a little toy that won't get in the way. Use the exclusive code LOVEMURDER today for 15% off site-wide. Sharing pleasure during intimacy not only feels good in your body, but it can increase your emotional connection and decrease your stress levels. So you can take those good feelings with you throughout your day. But in order to get there, even the most sexually motivated couples can benefit from a strategically placed buzz. Enter Dame Products. Dame Products designed its hands-free toy, Eva, specifically for couples. It nestles close to the body and stays put with just a finger, so you and your partner can focus on intimacy. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. So what are you waiting for? Try adding a toy into the mix and discover new layers of pleasure you can share, plus sex you'll look forward to. Jesse, I was so excited when my Dame order arrived. I got the Eva for couples, but also the air and the oil. Yeah, I ended up going back and getting a couple extra things too after my first order. I love that the company is exploring and innovating around toys and pleasure for us as individuals and for us as couples as well. Power up your pleasure with any of the toys from Dame Products. Go to dameproducts.com slash lovemurder today for 15% off site-wide. That's code LOVEMURDER to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. So who the hell is this apparent murderer who was described by everyone as mild-mannered? Let's get into the old backstory time machine and find out. Hemi was a reserved, intelligent man who hid a secret world of fear, isolation, and possibly mental illness behind a veil of responsibility and competence. Ooh, not a good start, Jessica. This is going to get dark. Trigger warning, Holocaust right now. His family's trauma had begun during the Holocaust when his father, Mark Newman, was one of 130 extended family members taken to Auschwitz. Oh, no. And this is Hemi's dad. Out of those 130 souls, all but 12 were killed. Jesus. Mark and his brother, Hemi's uncle, were two of the survivors, and they moved to Mexico after Auschwitz was liberated. So there is clearly a very deep hereditary trauma here. Yes. In Mexico, Hemi's father met and married a much younger woman. Rebecca Cohen was only 17 to Mark's 36. And the couple ended up having three children in relatively quick succession. First, Hemi's older brother, then Hemi was the middle child, and then their younger sister. 
the family eventually moved to Puerto Rico, which is where Hemi spent most of his childhood. Mark was a detached father at best and an incredibly abusive one at worst. No. Yeah, I think there was clearly a lot of trauma at play here, which we've always said explains the behavior but does not excuse it. Hemi was frequently beat by his father for the smallest infractions. If he did something like drop a bowl of food on the ground, even by accident, he would be beat with a belt. Hemi's sister Monique recalled coming home one day with shaved ice and it for some reason triggering her father so badly that he grabbed a picture frame from the wall of their living room and beat the little girl over her rear end with it until she was black and blue. The violence was unpredictable and they never knew what would set him off. So, I mean, it sounds like PTSD. Yeah. So again, we are not doctors. We cannot retroactively say what somebody is, but that's a trauma and stress response that he's having to his children. Yeah. And things that the children are holding. And doing. Yeah. But obviously we have no idea what he went through, but this is horrific for these children who are walking on eggshells and have absolutely no idea if something that they're doing that's completely innocent could cause yeah. a very traumatic beating now. So this is yeah. the the cycle of trauma that's occurring right now. Hemi also said that he feels like he got the worst out of it as the middle child. Eventually, the older brother was away or went away for school. And Monique even admitted that she was so terrified of her father that sometimes if he said who did this, she would say him, even though it was her, which she, you have to forgive yourself for your child who doesn't want to get beat. Of course, you're like, please beat somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So Hemi had it pretty rough and neither of the children or any of the children rather were attached to either mother or father. Their mother was a socialite who spent a lot of time traveling back to Mexico or Venezuela to see family members. She apparently also played a lot of bridge nights. She was just absent from the home quite a bit. And the kids did say that their parents did fight a little bit, but it was nothing like what they experienced from their father. It didn't sound like he was physically abusive with the mother at all, but he was jealously protective of her in different ways. They said that if she had gone out drinking the night before and was sleeping it off, that he would scream at the kids that their mother needed their beauty sleep and that they weren't to wake her up or bother her at all. So they have two very detached and one abusive parent. And they said they basically raised themselves with the help of a maid that the family hired. Despite all of this, Hemi was a very bright and promising student. When he was 13 years old, his life was further turned upside down when his father abruptly told him that he was going to boarding school in Israel, despite the fact that Hemi could not speak Hebrew and did not know a soul in the country. When he arrived at the airport, no one was there from the school to pick him up or help him in any way. And the 13-year-old had to figure out how to get a taxi on his own in a foreign country. Once he managed to and had succeeded, they arrived at the school only to find it completely locked up. The gates wouldn't be opened until the morning. So the taxi driver took pity on him and actually ended up taking him home to his own family because he's this poor, scared kid. Yeah. So this made Hemi feel further abandoned, orphaned, terrified. Yes. 
And he said later that this was the dawning of him experiencing depression, which was something that would follow him for the rest of his life. After graduating from boarding school, Hemi arrived in the United States to attend Georgia Tech in the early 80s. School began well enough, but he experienced a major depressive episode during his junior year that tanked his GPA. Nonetheless, he somehow managed to keep it together enough to graduate. Couldn't imagine trying to do college with severe depression. Yeah. I think also at that point, his parents had divorced. His mother was remarried. There was just a lot going on in his life. But he did. He managed to end up graduating and he even got a good job in Israel. So he went back to Israel. While he was there, he met and married his wife, Ariella, who was an Israeli school teacher. They were happy. They welcomed twins. And then later they had another daughter. Things seemed pretty good for them. But in 1998, he surprised everyone when he impulsively bought a house in Boca Raton, Florida, While the family was on vacation there, quit his job and relocated his family to the States. This was a big crisis. The first, I think, real big crisis in Hemi's marriage. Because it didn't sound like he had done a lot of consulting with his wife before making these choices. (laughs) And neither Hemi nor Ariella had secured work in Florida before this decision was made. So eventually, the proceeds from their Israeli home soon dried up because that was whatever extra they had. And then after that whole thing, the family was forced to move back to Israel where he could get a job. So that's an exhausting thing to go through with children. Yes. Back and forth in a foreign country. So yeah, a few years later, he managed to get a really good position with GE. And the family did return to the U.S. Only this time he was fully employed and was very well paid by the office in Marietta, Georgia. It was working in this capacity and unwittingly through Ariella, his wife of over two decades, that Hemi Newman eventually became Andrea Snyderman's boss and maybe lover. Though both Hemi and Andrea originally denied that any sort of extramarital affair had occurred, detectives poured over the co-workers' emails, phone records, and business travel itineraries, and the evidence they collected pointed strongly to at least some type of an intimate relationship. I'd imagine. First of all, Hemi went on just about every business trip that Andrea went on, even lying to his wife about one trip that Andrea was scheduled to go on that he wasn't even supposed to be on. So he told his wife that he also had to go on this trip and he used his own family's money to go on it as well, just to be with her. Not cool. Not cool. The affair part of it, huge betrayal, but also betrayal because the family was deeply in debt at this point. The twins were at Georgia Tech. There were some spending issues. He blames Ariella later on. Sounds like it was Hemi. So yeah, they were not doing well financially. Were they already split? No, they're still together at this point, at the oh, point where he did this. Yeah, cool. They're still fully together. And they've also got another kid who's about to go to college, who's in high school. So yeah, financially they're not doing well. So he's spending their hard-earned money to go off with his alleged, at this point, lover. She wouldn't find this out until much later, but still. And I guess at this specific time, they were in Colorado. And when Andrea arrived first at the hotel and Hemi came to meet her, He ended up calling the hotel several times in an attempt to get the front desk staff to personally deliver flowers and chocolates to Andrea's room. Bro, do it yourself. Go pick up flowers yourself. Yeah, he even said to somebody, 
the guy was like, I'm so sorry, it's too late. The florist shops are all closed. We can't get anyone to send over flowers to you. And he was like, well, can you go and spend your own money to go buy some flowers somewhere, like even at a grocery store, and then put it in her room and I'll just pay you back when I get there? And the guy's like, no, no, I cannot do that with my own hard-earned money and take time off of my shift. Also, like, unaware that it's, like, an affair and not his actual wife. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Because he was also saying, he's like, I really need you to do it because we're newlyweds and we've actually haven't been apart since we got married. And I just don't want her to be lonely. I want her to know I'm thinking about her. Wow. I think that in the Michael Fleeman book, too, that it was really funny. Like, one of the... uh, The the person the first person was like, okay, I'm gonna make a note in your file. We'll see if that's possible. And then like the person that came on shift afterwards wrote, what the fuck do I do with this? <laughs> like in the note section, like what do you want, what do you want me to do about this? So yeah, he talked to several people about trying to get these items to Andrea. I think at some point flowers were delivered somehow, and I guess Andrea only blushed about it. They were like, wow, your husband's really romantic, and she's like, uh huh, okay, whatever. And then when Hemi did arrive to the hotel, she changed her room. She, Andrea herself, made a room request change to go from a room that she was in at the time that was two queen beds to a room that was one single king bed. So that's pretty sus. There was also emails exchanged about other flowers that Hemi gifted her and things that he had said or done that was romantic. She complimented him in one email for being sweet and thoughtful. At the same time, though, and this is really gross, Hemi was also ingratiating himself with Rusty. Uh, It appeared through email that the two men had had some sort of meetup or coffee or conversation at some point because Hemi was looking to get a job outside of GE. He was looking for a better position because he'd kind of reached the top of where he could go within GE. Yeah. And the creme of the crop. Yes. And Rusty had a ton of contacts. He had been in business for a long time. He was a Harvard Business School graduate. And so Hemi had the balls to ask Rusty for help or connections in finding a different type of position. Yeah, that's so not cool. It's very not cool. He also was emailing Andrea about her children, like requesting pictures of her daughter's birthday party and suggesting parenting advice and presents that the kids might like, which was very much overstepping by a lot. What was Andrea's response? She was seemed amenable to it. There was no evidence of her saying, I'm in love with you. I love you. Like, I love you so much. Thank you for everything you've done for us. There's nothing so overt. All of this is very Yeah, but there was nothing saying this is inappropriate either. There's one area we're about to get into where something happened. On Thursday, August 26th, Andrea once again set out on a business trip with Hemi. Now, this one was to Greenville, South Carolina, which is only 135 miles from Atlanta. Yeah. So Hemi had always traditionally done this business trip in one go because you drive two hours there, you spend a whole day, you drive two hours home. That's how you do it. Yeah, easy. Yeah, absolutely. So this was something traditionally done in one day, but Hemi and Andrea apparently had decided to spend the night there. Something happened. During this trip, during that night, the detectives are looking at these emails. This was from Michael Fleeman's book where he broke down these emails. And the next day, the day after this business trip, Hemi wrote, I caused you so much pain when all I wanted was to give you so much. I know it doesn't help, but I'm sorry. I shouldn't have come over. 
You are so beautiful and such a great person. I discovered the mature, responsible mama, Andrea. Don't respond. So maybe he went into her room. He did something physical, if I'm reading between the lines, but we don't know for sure. The emails did not disclose the reason for his apology. Whatever it was, it triggered days of soul searching for Andrea. She wrote, I really don't know what to say at this point. I'm angry. Your apology is heartfelt, but it does not make the ongoing pain go away that I now have to repent and live with for the rest of my life. Not sure what I was thinking. I'm also feeling that we may have ruined it. Not sure. I'm not trying to be hurtful. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm not sure how to live with this. So Hemi told her that he wasn't going to write her again. He said, this is the last one for me. And I know it won't help, but please never forget how much I love you. I know, replied Andrea, but so do other people. I betrayed them all. I'm not sure how to deal with that for now, but my burden, not yours. And then they didn't exchange emails for a full day. But then Hemi said in a very late night email, one last thought, besides the birth of my twins, that was the most beautiful experience of my life. Oof. The next morning at 7.46 in the morning, Andrew wrote back her tone sharp. I appreciate that, but please understand what I'm feeling. I am having constant feelings of anger towards you, me, everything. Yes, mixed with other feelings as well, but selfish feelings I am trying to suppress at the moment. Thursday night was one of the best I had in a long time. It was such a great evening as a whole, and now I feel sad. I will never have that again. So many other things to say, but not appropriate for email. Most result in me getting angry. His response is wild. He responds to that saying, marry me. You're thinking I'm crazy and you've made your intentions clear, but before you respond, spend a night thinking about it. It won't solve anything, but you know I will give you, Sophia, and Ian the world. Together we can make it all work. Marry me. He then alludes to other evenings that they've spent time together seemingly romantically. He said in a different email around the same time, it's about how you felt when we looked at the stars in Tahoe, when we woke up Friday morning in Denver, and we walked out of the restaurant on Thursday when you took my hand and nestled your head on my shoulder. He just goes on to say all the things that he wants to do with her, how he wants to be with her forever. He wants their relationship to be legitimate. And she kind of wrote back, I think I should have been more supportive in your situation with your wife, with ending your marriage. We went too far, too fast. If you'd like to talk as a friend about your marriage, then we can. And this diffused the whole thing. They go back to having work conversations, friendly conversations, like skipping over this whole marry me thing. Whoa. Yeah. So we don't know what's going on here, but clearly something happened. And everyone who worked with them reported that they seemed totally normal. They said if there was any indication that something was going on, it was that they always sat together at meetings and that they seemed to be friendly or fond of each other. But there was none of that telltale grab ass that we hear about in other cases where coworkers or people around them had a suspicion. No one really had a suspicion. There were a couple people that they confided in, however. Andrea told a good friend named Shana Citron that her boss had said that he was in love with her and that when Shayna kind of pushed her to see how she was feeling about it, she said that she thought he was attractive and that if she had not been married, she would be interested. But she didn't admit anything about the affair. 
Shayna advised her to focus on her own marriage, to try to avoid business trips with Hemi, and if she could not avoid business trips, to always request a hotel room on a different floor. That's great friend advice. Which is really good because Shayna was a professional as well, and she said this is just something we have to deal with, and unfortunately it's on us. It's The onus is on us to make sure you're not put in a situation where things can go sour or spicy, depending on how interested you are in what's going on. Hemi was much more direct with his confidants. He told his realtor and friend Melanie White that he wanted to divorce his longtime wife. He started the conversation by saying, we are probably going to have to list my house for sale. You're going to get the sale, of course. I'm divorcing my wife. I want to downsize. I've met someone. And it seems like I'm not sure how close they were at the beginning, but by the end of this debacle, Melanie had become his number one confident that he was spilling his guts to about this relationship and about the reason for the end of his marriage. He didn't say who Andrea was because they were all involved in the Jewish community in Atlanta. So he's like, you might know her, so I'm not going to say her name, but this woman, she's incredible. She's still married, but she's considering leaving her husband and I'm so into her. He did say that physical things had happened between them. He suggested that sex had happened between them, but that it wasn't about sex. It was so much more than that. And he wanted to build a life with this other woman and her young children. He also kind of despaired a little bit. He forward, eventually he gave up on pretending that he wasn't going to share who Andrea was. I'm sure after Melanie gave him some assurances because he started forwarding emails from Andrea to Melanie asking her for her advice about what she thought Andrea might be trying to say or what their chances of being together were. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was despairing because Andrea would be very affectionate with him one day. And the other day she'd be like, I don't, I'm never going to leave my husband. What are you talking about? Absolutely not. And so on one of these occasions, Melanie said that Hemi told her that he told Andrea that he couldn't have sex with somebody that he didn't love and that it was killing him to pretend that he was somebody he wasn't. And he had told Melanie that that might have gone too far and that it was too heavy for her. And he said, but I don't want to lose her, but I had to be honest. And Melanie was horrified by this whole thing. She was like, Hemi, and she wrote this in an email, it continues to sound like she is lifting you up and knocking you down because she herself displays emotions that are up and down. Always in the end, she continues to tell you she's not leaving her marriage. I'm not sure if she's trying to convince you or herself. In my opinion, a person does not have an affair, whether emotional or physical or both, unless they have a portion of their heart and foot in or out of the door. So she was like, you need to clean up your own side of the street. And you need to let her clean up her own side of the street. And if you both decide to eventually end your respective marriages, then that's fine. That's good for you. But you can't just plow into this relationship that's not how he's taking it is not he's taking it as so there's a chance so you're saying there's a chance that's exactly how he's taking it <laughs> and she even advised him to be very careful before he makes yeah. the monumental step of ending his 22 year marriage as it will affect his children his family his wife mutual friends i mean we had some friends get divorced after five years and it blew up our whole group. Oh my God. Yeah. Collateral damage everywhere. Everywhere. And that was only a five-year marriage with no kids. So imagine 22 years, a life built together, 
three almost grown children. I'm sure we'll experience that at some point, sadly. Oh, not God, with don't us, say but it. With friends. Yeah, not, not with us. But like, also, don't even say that. I just like, everyone who's happy right now will be happy forever. <laughs> <laughs> so despite Melanie's advice, of course, like you said, Hemi didn't take it. And on Sunday, October 3rd, he wrote an email to his wife, three children, and 15 relatives and close friends, including Melanie, that announced that he was leaving Ariella. I'm not even going to get into it. I've read too many sappy emails to you guys today. But he's like, I have to do this. I've lived too long without affection and happiness. And I know I'm the bad guy here. And I'm so sorry, Relly, I think that's what his nickname was for her. I'm so sorry to my children. I know that you guys are going to hate me, but it's just something I have to do. Just know that I love you. And it was a lot. It's a lot to send out to your entire family and friend group instead of having a private conversation with your wife. And of course, Ariella was stunned and she was embarrassed by the way he had decided to announce this very big and sensitive decision to their children and these friends and family that were also included in the email. And it just got worse for her too, because she apparently didn't realize that their financial situation was as dire as it was. So she's getting all of these hits are coming to poor Ariella at that point. Meanwhile, Hemi moved into a condo of a friend and he met a different friend out for drinks while he was living in this condo, which is also where the police ultimately interview him. And this friend said that Hemi was happy as a clam. Well, Ariella's trying to put together the pieces of her life. He is like having a great time. He's having drinks with this friend. He's saying that he's in love with this woman. He admitted that the woman was still married, but he said she's seriously considering leaving her husband. He said that the sex was amazing. It was like magic. And that she made him feel young again, like he's a high schooler. Classic. Classic. Cliche to beat all cliches. Seriously. Well, I guess Melanie or, no, there was another friend. There was another girlfriend that he had talked to, woman friend that he had spoken to about what was going on. And she was just like, dude, you're just having a midlife crisis. Calm down. Yep. Go buy a fucking car. Yeah, go buy a Ferrari. Get yourself more in debt. It's better than ruining everybody's lives forever. Yes. Yeah. On October 21st, Hemi and Andrea were once again traveling together, this time in Greenville on business when they sidled up to the bar at the Pulse nightclub and were witnessed canoodling and playing grab ass by the bartender, Christine Oliveira, as described in the opening of this episode. Only four or so weeks later, Hemi put four bullets and Rusty Snyderman in a preschool parking lot. Unreal. So there's no incriminating texts or emails exchanged that specifically spoke of the murder. There's nothing that they could find that hinted at the decision that they had made that Hemi was going to do this. There was nothing even veiled that they could find. The only thing that there was was that Hemi and Andrea had exchanged a flurry of calls on the day of the shooting. Oh. Yeah, which is always suspect, but Andrea said it's because he was her boss, so she had to keep him updated on the situation of what was going on. So they're saying there was work reasons, and I have to tell you I'm not coming back to the office, et cetera, et cetera. Additionally, the police were able to connect the murder weapon to Hemi through the person who had sold it to him. The previous owner, 
his girlfriend, for some reason, had kept one of the spent bullets. So they were able to take that bullet, which was from the same pack of ammo, shot from the same gun that Hemi had bought, and they could compare that to the bullets found in Rusty's body, and it was a match. They also had evidence that he had purchased the fake beard, as well as some other costume-related hair items at a costume shop. Now, during both the gun-buying trip and when he was at the costume shop, Hemi and Andrea had spoken on the phone at that exact times of those two occurrences, which is also suspect, but they have no way of knowing what they were speaking of, of course. What really sunk Hemi's pleas of innocence, however, was when his alibi was obliterated. The police subpoenaed GE's key card activity and found that Hemi had indeed arrived at work much earlier than his usual 7.45, 8.15 start time at 5.37 in the morning when he swiped in. So he was there. Then he powered up his computer to, I guess, make it look like he's working, but they could tell that he sent no emails, he browsed no websites, and he didn't do anything on it. A security camera caught him leaving at 5.51 in the morning after taking the back stairs to avoid swiping out. Bro, you don't know that they had cameras? Yeah, he took like the back staircase down. At 11.06, he filled up the minivan's gas tank and returned it to Enterprise. At 11.48 in the morning, he received a visitor badge instead of using his own key card to get into the building. So he apparently thought that this was going to make it look like he swiped in at 5.30 in the morning and then swiped out when he left for the day that they wouldn't realize he had left and then got a visitor badge. But when you get a visitor badge, you have to give them your ID. Give them your ID. To say you work in the building or you have business in the building. So there was a record of him coming back into the building. So clearly he had been gone from the building at the time of the murder. Taken all together, this is looking pretty, pretty bad for Hemi. He's in jail. The evidence is mounting against him. His wife legally separated from him and was about to file for divorce. His reasonable doubt defense that the defense attorneys were working on was crumbling before his eyes. And Andrea was not only denying any sort of affair or feelings for Hemi, but she was beginning to say that he was simply a crazy stalker, a predator who had victimized her family and killed her beloved husband that she had wanted nothing to do with and had never felt romantic towards at all. Well, the police thought the lady doth protest too much and were still trying to connect the dots to get to Andrea as well because they suspected that perhaps there was involvement. And I do have to say... Like her or not, which many people don't, and we'll talk about why later, and because she may or may not have been cheating on her husband, it's a hard position to be in. She was the breadwinner for a family. There was nobody else contributing to the household at that time. She had been out of work for a long time, or at least out of steady, full-time employment. I can see how a situation could get out of control, especially with a person who thinks she's smart enough to outmaneuver it. Yeah. I think people get in a little too deep in these situations all of the time, especially women who, like she said, I wouldn't go to HR because I'd be fired. I was a brand new employee. This is my boss. I could just handle it. I could handle him coming on to me 
but clearly she could not. So it goes without saying that Hemi's behavior in all of this is so much worse than Andrea's, even though later on she gets just painted as the full-on villain of this entire case. So the evidence was such that Hemi's defense attorneys pretty much did not have a hope for an acquittal through just a traditional form of defense. They said that with all hopes of an acquittal through reasonable doubt pretty much dashed, Hemi's attorneys held a press conference on September 10th, 2011, where they announced that their client was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh, they're going that route. Yep. Yes, perhaps he had pulled the trigger of the gun that killed Rusty Snyderman, but he could not be held responsible because of his state of mind at the time and his lack of criminal intent. This defense had been in the works since March of 2011 when Hemi had been treated by a highly sought-after forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Julie Rand Dorney, who took a personal history of Hemi, which is how we know so much of his backstory. She slowly worked into the events that led to Rusty's murder over many sessions. It soon became clear to Dr. Rand Dorney that Hemi had suffered from paranoia, psychosis, and delusions, namely that he believed that Andrea was his wife, that Rusty's children were his own children, and that he had to eliminate Rusty because Rusty was going to harm the children and it was his sworn duty to protect them. He also claimed that Andrea was like the biblical beauty Bathsheba and he was King David, which we have heard from other murderous cheaters. That was the Costco Christians episode. Yep. They had compared themselves to those same biblical figures. The real kicker is that he knew Rusty was going to hurt the children and that he knew he needed to kill Rusty was because a demon told him. Oh, no. This was a over six foot tall towering demon with the voice of Barry White. <laughs> what? He was describing the demon to the psychiatrist. And he's like, well, he's really tall. He had come to me several times in my life. He towers above me, but he's not crazy tall. And they're like, does he have a voice? It's a deep voice. He has a deep voice. He sounds like Barry White. Whoa. That's why I said at the beginning that a demon that has a, a voice most pleasing to very many people. He also said that he had occasionally seen an angel as well who had come to him in visions. And she had the voice of Olivia Newton-John, only not Australian. What? It doesn't exist. So an American... Were you saying like Sandy? Well, Sandy still so had an Australian Sandy. accent because remember she had moved there from Australia. Oh, yeah. So it's just... So what are you talking about, bro? Just American, an American version. I mean, it's an angel. So and we're already far out here. I think we can, we can stretch our imaginations a little further to imagine an Olivia Newton-John with an American accent. I cannot. That is, that's the stop of your creativity. That's where I draw my line. <laughs> Yes, and rest in peace, Olivia Newton-John. R.I.P., yeah, I'm not going to disrespect her like that. That's true. So it was in this state of mind, Hemi's lawyers argued, mentally ill and led on by a conniving woman that caused a previously good man and father to pick up a gun and kill Rusty Snyderman because he 
was following delusions that made him believe that Rusty posed a great threat to his children. And the psychiatrist actually believes this, like no one was paying her. So, I mean, legal experts are always getting paid. So she was getting... By who? By the, by the d- defense. defense attorney? Absolutely, yep. Okay. And the prosecution pays their expert witnesses as well. Everyone is paid for their time. But there were two additional mental health professionals that corroborated what the initial forensic psychiatrist found. Okay. That he was indeed mentally ill. It was that he had bipolar disorder. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder with paranoia and severe delusions. Whoa. Which, if you look back, explains some of the episodes in manic states, the moving to Florida without consulting his family or making sure he had a job. I mean, buying a house on vacation in general is so like... Yes. So there was evidence of some history of both manic and depressive episodes. And that is what led the mental health professionals to diagnose him with bipolar. And it seemed like they did believe that the trauma of the abusive childhood paired with a lot of other things that had happened in his life had just caused these mental breaks. So many people wanted to know now, so this is out in the media that they're going to go for this defense. They wanted to know now what was Andrea's part in this. That was the next very large question was what did she have to do with that? Now that you're saying he is mentally ill or he's insane, does that mean that the affair was also a delusion? You could argue that on Andrea's side, it never happened at all. He's saying that demons and angels are coming to him. It's not a stretch to say that he also made up everything about the affair. Not at all. Not at all. The emails where she's upset, he's saying, I shouldn't have come over or something happened. She could have argued that he came over and she rebuffed him and she was upset about that because they'd been having a good time. Yep. Well, Everyone would soon have the opportunity to judge for themselves what they believed when Hemi's trial began on Tuesday, February 21st, 2012. The prosecution's case was pretty straightforward. Hemi Newman had an affair with Andrea Snyderman and fell in love with her. Eliminating his rival solved not one but two potential problems for him. Andrea would be all his, and he would potentially be able to access her considerable funds— you know, including the $2 million payout and the couple's significant savings if they did end up together, thus eliminating his money issues. There was, of course, piles of evidence and eyewitnesses to prove his guilt, which they didn't even really need because Hemi admitted that he killed Rusty Snyderman. What they were there to prove as the prosecution was that he had been 100% in his right mind when he had done so, which they felt like they could prove because he took so many actions to conceal the murder and his identity, as well as there was a lack of evidence that Hemi was previously mentally ill. And no one, including his wife of 22 years, claimed to have ever heard about these angels and demons that he said he was seeing and had seen for years. Defense attorney Doug Peters opened with, this case is about two good men, which is pretty ballsy, calling Rusty Schneiderman a great father to his two children and Hemi Newman a great father to three. But on that morning in November, the lives of those men and their families were shattered, broken in pieces on the ground, never to be put back together again. Why? Everyone in this courtroom and this community is looking for the answer. He told jurors to look no farther than the victim's wife. 
Hemi had an affair with her, Peter said, and by the end, he became convinced he had to kill Rusty to save Andrea's children, prodded into murderous action by visions of an angel and a demon. Now that's a dadgum story, Peters acknowledged, but insisted it was one he could prove. Seemed that the one thing that both the prosecution and the defense agreed upon was that Andrea was far from innocent and she was the first witness to testify against Hemi Newman. It got heated up on that stand, and Andrea did herself no favors. She was combative. Oh, no. She was short. She was rude. She was aggressive on the stand. She categorically denied any type of affair with Hemi. She said they had never slept in bed together. They had never kissed. She said nothing had ever happened between them, despite the emails and the witnesses who said otherwise. Wow. Even, I guess, a psychologist for the prosecution, and she's supposed to be a prosecution witness, prosecutorial witness, when she was examined by technically her side's therapist said that she refused. She just shut down. She wouldn't even engage in any questions about this alleged affair. She just said, nope, didn't happen. If anything, she said that she was the victim in this, preyed upon by a boss who knew she had no choice but to be polite throughout ever-increasing overtures that he made towards her which I agree with. However, if she was truly innocent, she should have said in the first interview, I think I know who killed my husband. This guy's been all over me. He's been coming on to me. He's sending me these emails, look through my emails. It's crazy. So why didn't she? Why did she downplay it? Why did she? Because she's guilty too. Yes. She's guilty of something, whether she's just guilty of the affair or is she guilty of being complicit in the murder? She's absolutely hiding something. So the way that this was going, it soon seemed like this trial was less about Hemi's guilt and more about Andrea's guilt. I mean, it was all about Andrea. Michael Fleeman wrote that the first day of the trial of Hemi Newman was nearly completed, and so far it had little to do with him. Except for the early questions about demons and hallucinations, there had been virtually nothing to build a case showing that Hemi was not so mentally ill at the time of the killing that he didn't know right from wrong. It was all about Andrea. Her tone, defensive, snarky, condescending, lecturing, stunned those in the courtroom. Oh, God, babe. Yeah, he said that she was smirking while she was on the stand. And there were soon witnesses that this is still Hemi's trial coming up and saying that Andrea had lied about things and that Andrea had incriminated herself. Rusty's father and her friend Shayna both, I think, testified that at a time that Andrea said she did not yet know that Rusty had been shot, she had called them on her way to the hospital when no one on the scene had said he was shot. And when she herself told the police she didn't find out till she was at the hospital, both her friend and her father-in-law said that she said, my husband's been shot. Yeah, and the secretary at the school said there's been an accident, not that anyone had been shot. No one told her that. Yep. So that was a huge red flag. How did she know that her husband had been shot? And we talked about that. Our husbands being shot at our kids' school would be one of the later things we'd thought about. If somebody said accident, I would think car 100%. Yeah, car or like something happened at school, obviously. exactly. So that was a big red flag. And this was during Hemi's trial that this came out. Yeah, she made no friends of the judge, too, because she was smirking all over the stand. And then when they did allow her to step down, most of the time, witnesses are not allowed to watch court proceedings. But she was also the wife of the victim. So she had been able to stay in the courtroom 
where she started saying no to things when the defense attorneys are arguing, when a witness is saying something, she's like, that's not true. She's saying it loudly. When Shayna Citron, her friend, testified and testified that Andrea had told her that the affair was not happening, but the prosecutor said, did you believe her? She said no. And so this is obviously a tense moment. And Shayna got down from the stand and in front of the jury, Andrea stood up and gave her this huge hug as some sort of sign of solidarity. And it seemed to influence the jury in thinking that these two women were all right. When in fact, Shayna would later say that she was terrified for her life because Andrea followed her out and threatened her and said, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. You had to say what you say. I'm going to have to do what I have to do. So keep your mouth shut, basically. So it was all for the jury show. At that point, everyone was up in arms. The defense is like, get her out of here. She's interfering with court proceedings. And she did end up getting kicked out of the courtroom for the rest of the trial. After that display, Rusty's brother, Stephen, issued a statement about her behavior. He said, today's extraordinary action is yet another example of Andrea's behavior that has been deeply troubling to our family for some time. Shayna Citron said, I became frightened after she was banned from the courthouse because I was thinking back to what she said. For years, they had been the closest of friends. When I learned that she was banned, I called my attorney. I called my children's school to make sure she couldn't get at them. Oh, my God. After Andrea was booted, most of the rest of the trial was about some of the undisputed evidence that Hemi had indeed killed Rusty. And then, of course, there was the three expert psychiatric professionals who supported the defense's claim that Hemi was mentally ill. The most shocking part of the trial, though, was when the prosecution played a video of Hemi being interviewed by their expert psychologist, where he detailed his preparations to kill Rusty including his first attempt to kill Rusty on November 10th. The gas. He had been the man. But the craziest thing was the gas actually saved or for at least eight days spared Rusty's life because he hadn't done anything to the gas. He had a gun yep. on him. Yeah. And he was waiting until he got back from dropping Ian off. And then when the car pulled into the garage... He was going to jump into the garage with him and shoot him there. But when he came around the house to investigate the smell of the gas, that's when he startled Hemi and thwarted his plan. And they have him on video admitting to this. And he seems very matter of fact, which is why the prosecution is using this to prove that he's not mentally ill because he's like, well, it's like anything you do. You just make a plan and you execute. Uh... Yep. In closing, the defense pulled no punches where Andrea was concerned. Her attorneys were like, comment at her very, very strong. So his first attorney, defense attorney Rubin, said, in June 2010, Hemi Newman had dinner with Andrea Snyderman. In June 2010, Hemi Newman opened up to her like he had never opened up before, and he tells her about his childhood. You saw in the clips. He tells her what he felt and how this affected him. Doug Peters, this is the other attorney, will talk to you about his relationship and why his relationship with Andrea Snyderman led to the death of Rusty. Then Doug Peters said that Andrea was an adulterer, a tease, a calculator, a liar, and a master manipulator. 
Andrea, he said, intuited everything the mental health professionals would later diagnose. Andrea knew Hemi was losing his mind. Sophia and Ian's daddy's blood is on the hands of Andrea Snyderman. She is the person, the one person who knew that Hemi was spinning out of control. She knew Rusty had been shot because she had primed the pump, planted the seed, stoked the fire. She knew that she was with somebody who was sick. In the end, he said, this case is about one bad, one really bad woman, Andrea Snyderman. The gun was in Hemi's hand, but the trigger, I suggest, was pulled by Andrea Snyderman. And he also reminded the jury that if they choose to return a verdict of guilty but mentally ill or not guilty by reason of insanity, he's still going to go to a mental institution for the, you know, mental care facility for the rest of his life, that he would not be out free, he wouldn't be a danger to society. So to keep that in mind while they're deliberating. So this was electric. And then the prosecutor, the district attorney, got to go last And he was also on fire. If you watch the 2020 on ID, District Attorney Robert James was, he put on a good show too. This was an electric courtroom, I got to tell you guys, because he's arguing that he's not crazy. They're like, well, some people said he was acting a little erratically. He hadn't always shared this much of his personal life with his friends, like when he was talking about sex and stuff. And he goes, it's not because he's crazy. What might better explain Hemi's behavior with something else? He's having an affair. He's about to go to the room and do the horizontal mambo. Yes, it's great. What man wouldn't be like, woo, I'm about to have sex. It's great. If that makes him insane, then half the men walking down the street are insane. Really? That's evidence of mania? Oh, my God. (laughs) It was great. I was like, cheers to you, sir. That is correct. That is correct. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the jury deliberated for about a day and a half on two counts. One was murder, and they could find Hemi guilty, not guilty. They could also find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but mentally ill. And the other count was the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. So what do you think they voted? (sighs) The latter. The guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but mentally ill. They did. That's absolutely what they did. And then just straight up guilty on the other count. So Rusty's family was a little dismayed about this at the beginning because they didn't know what this would mean for sentencing. Was he truly going to be sentenced to a mental health facility or was he going to have prison time? Yeah, but it would be life at either place, right? I'm pretty sure. But I mean, I feel like people with mental, actual mental illness, it's like probably better for them to be at a facility, right? And they still won't be released. Since oh, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you completely. But it wasn't the jury's decision on sentencing. It was the judges. Mm. So they ruled as they saw fit that they said, yes, this man, we believe this man is very mentally unwell. It seems that though the judge did not say so explicitly, he must have disagreed with that assertion because... He sentenced Hemi to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yikes. Yeah, ale-whopped, even though the jury had put that, but he's definitely mentally unwell, little tack on on their verdict. Did the jury have any feedback on that? Not that I read. I'm sure they had feelings about it. I was curious. You know how sometimes they interview them after and they like talk about... Yeah, every once in a while I do have good little tidbits from the jury. I just bought a book that's all from the juror's perspective. So I'm interested to hear about that. That's cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one. So obviously Hemi's attorneys were not happy about that. 
and everyone. I mean, this is, he's going to prison for life and now everyone's whoop looking at Andrea. So Hemi's attorney said the entire truth has not been presented. Hemi Newman was as good of a man who has ever walked this earth until he met Andrea Snyderman. Andrea Snyderman should be charged with murder in the first degree. I think she preyed upon him and used him to commit the crime. Rusty's brother agreed. He said, we know she lied about her involvement with Newman. We will have no peace until everyone involved in Rusty's death is brought to justice. It is clear to us that Andrea is covered in Rusty's blood. There aren't enough rabbis in the world to wash that blood away. Ooh. Ooh. District Attorney Robert James had just won a huge case, and they're asking him, does it matter that it was with the caveat that he's mentally ill? And he said, guilty is guilty. Justice has been served. And he acknowledged that his office would now have to deal with the thousand-pound pink gorilla in the corner, as he called Andrea. He said that it's something that we're looking at. I know it's important to this family. It's important to America. But as a prosecutor, I have an obligation to follow the facts and make a decision that seeks justice. But he said, stay tuned. And when we know something, y'all will know. Well, that day came on Thursday, August 2nd, 2012, when Andrea was indicted on one count each of malice murder, felony murder, and aggravated assault, seven counts of perjury, four counts of giving false statements, as well as hindering the apprehension of a criminal. Whoa. Yep. At the same time, Rusty's family members filed a wrongful death suit, so she's getting hammered at this point. But don't worry about Andrea being lonely, Andy, because... Part of this wrongful death suit, they said that there was another possible motivation for what could have occurred actually between all of these individuals, because apparently Andrea had taken up with this guy. His name was Joseph Dell. He was visiting her in prison when she was arrested on all of those counts. And this guy was part of a blog called Friends of Andrea. And it seemed that they had known each other at some point before this happened and that his interest in the case and Andrea had torpedoed his own personal relationship. He separated from his six months pregnant wife <gasps> in June of 2011 during heavy media coverage of the case before it went to trial. And his wife filed for divorce on the day that Andrea testified at trial because her husband had declined to be with her that day and had gone to the courthouse to support Andrea. I mean, that's not why she was getting divorced, but it just so happened that she delivered him divorce papers on the day that he was in court with Andrea. According to recorded jailhouse phone conversations, this man, Joseph Dell, was heard crying and professing his love for Andrea and Andrea was heard telling him to move in with her parents, whom he called mom and dad. Apparently, when he said, I love you, I love you so much, and he was crying, Andrea responded similarly, it sounds like, to how she dealt with Hemi's declarations of love. She said, well, I don't know what to say. So Rusty Snyderman's family said, well, this is, she has a pattern of doing this to men, and that they suggested that apparently she had known Joseph before and they had had playdates. And they were saying, well, what if she manipulated Hemi to kill her husband to get them both out of the picture? And then she got the guy she wanted all along. Well, basically her attorney said, well, this is all bullshit. 
Like, yes, maybe they're having a relationship now. They weren't having a relationship before. There wasn't any proof of it. This is ridiculous. And you're doing this to get Hemi to turn on her. If this gets out, if Hemi finds out about it, if this is in the press, he has been stalwart this entire time saying that she knew nothing about his plans. He's admitted that he's killed Rusty. He said it was his plan all along. He had two plans. And he said Andrea had nothing to do with it. He even said that the reason why he was wearing disguises was because he didn't want Andrea to know that he had killed her husband. That's how far out of the loop she was. That's what he believed. So her attorneys were saying, now going into her trial, that this was just a ploy to get Hemi to turn on her. But it didn't work. In the end, and perhaps due to complete lack of cooperation from Hemi, the prosecution could not make its case that Andrea was actually involved or the mastermind behind Rusty's murder. Even in all of the text and email evidence, there was not one whiff of anything resembling knowledge of the murder. The best thing they had were the witnesses that said that she had this foreknowledge of the shooting and there was the coincidence of when these phone calls occurred. They had nothing solid. And so the DA was forced to say, look, it's my responsibility to deliver justice. And trying to prosecute on this scant evidence is not delivering justice to anyone, which is the responsible thing to do. And Andrea's trial did go forward, though, on the lesser charges, which were she ended up being found guilty of hindering the apprehension of a criminal, concealment of material facts, false statements, and perjury. So she was found, she did go to trial, she was found guilty on those charges. In sentencing, D.A. James sought 20 years in prison. Well, Andrea's attorneys, Ooh. yes, a lot. And Andrea's attorneys asked for five years probation. Andrea issued a statement on her own behalf begging the judge for leniency and looking altogether like a very, very different woman than the one who had been so combative and confident on the stand at Hemi's trial. This time she was crying. She was shaking. She looked repentant. Andrea was given five years on each count, but they were to be run concurrently. So five total with credit for time already served in jail and during house arrest. So all of that being said, Andrea walked out of jail a free woman after serving 22 months of her sentence on June 16th, 2014. Hemi successfully appealed his conviction, stating that Andrea's perjury had affected the outcome of his own trial, which is true. A new trial was granted and held in 2015, but Hemi was once again convicted and LWOPed. So... Andrea's out, and Hemi remains behind bars. Is Andrea a liar? Yes. We can say that. <laughs> I think we could say that. Well, yeah, she was found guilty of lying. She was found lying. guilty of perjury. Yes, absolutely. Do we think she had an affair? Yes. I think so, too. That My gut feeling would be yes. And, guys, this is speculation, just based on what we've read and talked about today. Do I think she had a part in the murder? Oof, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. I mean, it's entirely possible that this was just an affair that got out of control and he acted completely on his own. This is why you don't have affairs. This is, again, I feel like all of these are just like long morality tales. All of these episodes of Love Murder about why you shouldn't have an affair. Okay, so I have a Wikipedia fun fact that's not quite a Wikipedia fun fact because I found it somewhere else. But I think we should still do the Wikipedia fun fact song. I don't know if we can. I don't think it's qualified. Okay, say Michael Fleeman book fun fact. 
Michael Fleeman book fun fact. <laughs> there we go. That's it. All right. So Andrea was recorded talking to her boyfriend while she was in jail, saying that if or when a movie was made of her life, she thought that Sandra Bullock was. <gasps> she did not. She said that Sandra Bullock. She did not. Should play her. Oh, oh it gets worse. But. If she wasn't quite so old, she would make a good choice. She went on to say, I watched the Miss Congeniality movie and I thought she kind of has my personality. So it'd be a good choice, but I think she might just be a little old. So we'll see. Well, this is obviously before she saw Sandra Bullock's new face. <laughs> well, at the time, Andrea was 36 and Sandra 48. But I got to say... Sandra Bullock, 48, is an Andrea Snyderman, 28. So come on, lady. How much better are you going to do? Damn that. She's a national treasure. She is. She really is. In conclusion, gosh, it's an inelegant way of saying this, but it's been around since the dawn of time. Don't shit where you eat. Don't mess with your coworkers. It's a saying for a reason. It is a saying for a reason. It never ends well. And also, uh, we're getting to Halloween time, you know, when you're picking out your costumes. If you're going to pick out some facial hair wigs to uh, change your look and put on a disguise, maybe wear them appropriately and not under your chin or <laughs> wearing a beard without a mustache and a wig or vice versa. It's very recognizable and you're going to get caught doing whatever you're doing. Uh, yeah, and I failed to mention that during the first attempt, he was wearing a full-on wig and mustache. So he hit up this costume store. I mean, he got the wig, the mustache. The beard. Do you think he got one of those? What are they called? The uh, the pubic hair wigs? Oh, the Merkin. Yes, the Merkin. <laughs> <laughs> Got to run through it. Got to get the, the wig from top to bottom. The wig, full. mustache, beard, Merkin. The carpet's got to match the drapes, you know? So if you're going to, you got to you gotta match it up. Be in, the, be in oh, character. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one ends up wearing a bad Merkin. Okay, we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.